Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Cousin Vine for October 21st. I'm sorry, October 17th, 2021. I'm getting to midweek ahead of myself. Welcome, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, exciting show again tonight. Uh, another author, um, also known for a few other things as well, Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is going to be coming on the show in about 10 minutes to discuss his new book, GOP 2.0, um, a very different look at, at the vision of the GOP than we may have seen from a lot of people um, that have been really subscribing to um, Donald Trump and his theories of politics within the Republican Party. So we're going to talk to Lieutenant Governor Duncan um, all about that and here in just a little bit. But until then, we're going to keep it Georgia tonight early in the show, and we're going to talk about the Atlanta mayoral race. Um, you know, people are forgetting in some places where there may not be as many exciting races. Like, I don't even think I am uh, have a single uh, race on my ballot, so I won't be going to the polls. But if you live in a city like Catherine, you're going to be going to – uh, the polls to vote for mayoral, city council, city school board, things like that. And so, Catherine, the mayor's race, obviously one of the most important non-statewide races in Georgia. Um, give us kind of your opening thoughts on it. Well, we've entered into, you know, the silly season in the uh, Atlanta mayoral race. Uh, there's been all kinds of social media posts accusing one candidate of something and another candidate of something else, all kind of dark, behind-the-scenes, third-party, allegedly, uh, nasty grams. You know, I've I've gotten a couple of texts accusing candidates of everything from, you know, working with the Buckhead City people to, you know – corruption and all kinds of things um of course they deny it the other the other uh campaigns deny having anything to do with it but it's all very uh unfortunate um you know i always i my response to that kind of thing is don't talk about the other candidate tell me what's so great about you um but that doesn't really happen very often it's this is not uncommon in Atlanta politics. It's really not uncommon in politics at all. But in Atlanta, there just seems to be a lot of this kind of nastiness that goes on. Um, of course, we're you know down, we're in early voting now, so uh, we're down to the wire. Um, big, uh, lots of candidates running. Not very. There's really only probably four, you know, top contenders. Um, and I think everyone's, if they haven't already voted, they're of the anyone but or everyone but. Uh, um, so it's uh, it should be an interesting race. I'm sure there'll be a runoff uh, because there's so many candidates. So we'll see what happens. It's, uh, like I said, it's the silly season. Lots of nastiness going back and forth between uh, supporters and so we'll see. Yeah, it seems problematic that you would attack other candidates in such a large field because I was looking at some of the polls, found a site called crowdwisdom, crowdwisdom.live. Never heard of the site, but when I searched it, it had a list of polls, um, some of the more recent ones. And Really, in, in one poll, the top candidate, Kasim Reed, got 24%. In another poll, the top candidate, Felicia Moore, got 32%. Um, 
the and so therefore there's plenty of undecided out there. So therefore you um you're better off going after the undecideds than trying to you know grab maybe some of the voters off of one of those candidates that might be ahead exactly. of you. It sounds like even some people might be going off after the candidates that have four and five percent. Um, Tim, kind of what's your take on the race from outside of the city? Well, you got, what, 14 candidates or something like that in the race. There seems to be five serious candidates, people who could actually get some significant votes. Most of the polling is showing a back and forth between the former mayor, Kasim Reed, and uh, Felicia Moore, who's the city council president down there. Latest poll in AJC shows pretty much a dead heat between those two. And what you both mentioned, the AJC is showing something like 41% of the vote undecided. Man, what a bunch of undecideds when voting has already commenced. Um, appears that crime is the chief issue driving the race, followed by some of the usual ones like uh, housing, the pandemic. Now, six months ago, who would have bet that Buckhead would be an issue? <laughs> Buckhead wanting to break away and form their own municipality has suddenly become a hot issue. Well, you know, with 14 candidates, of course you're going to get a runoff. And depending on who you talk to, you figure either Kasim Reed or Felicia Moore is going to be in the runoff, one or the other, or both. Um, and then the other question Guys, is, is is how will the new laws, voting laws, affect the actual vote, especially with absentee votes and drop boxes? And Catherine might could address that better than me because yeah. she's well, actually before we, there. Before, yeah, and I think we'll pick up on that in a little bit. And I think that is a good, interesting test run for, for later elections all across the state, um, not just in Atlanta with some of the new voting uh, laws. But at this time, I want to welcome on our guest to the Kudzu Vine, the Lieutenant Governor of the State of Georgia, Jeff Duncan. Welcome, Lieutenant Governor Duncan. Good evening. Happy Sunday to everybody. No, happy Sunday to you, and, and glad you could make it. I know that um, when we scheduled this interview, you as a former professional baseball player did not know the Braves would be doing so well, but it is so kind of you to keep this commitment to us given that they're having the first pitch in, I guess, about 30 minutes, correct? Well, they've got that, and uh, I just landed in Washington, D.C. I've got a, uh, a speech tomorrow and part of a panel uh, for a group to talk about our Partnership for Inclusive Innovation, which is a, uh, a uh, really awesome opportunity for us to become the technology capital on the East Coast. So I'm going to put that on display for the great state of Georgia tomorrow afternoon. Okay. Uh, traveling a state still made the call in. Well, uh, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, as I alluded to, you had a professional baseball career, and you uh, featured that heavily in your commercials when you ran in 2018. And then, of course, your Lieutenant Governor. Just kind of start off by telling our listeners some things about yourself besides those two key touchstones. Well, you know, for, for me, you know, when I first got into politics and uh, ran for the state house out of Forsyth County in 2012, I think the, one of the more concerning things for me was that I didn't have any sort of political experience, and, and, and that felt like a, a liability. But I quickly realized, and in, in Forsyth County is as conservative as it is, folks really cared to hear more about my version of the American dream and uh, my story about how, uh, you know, I had, I had grown up and played the baseball route for a while, but then also started a successful business and built it and sold it and, and have done a number, number of other things in the business world. I think they also... We're, we're attracted to the fact that, you know, we've got three kids in the public school system. And, uh, you know, we, we certainly, when I'm making decisions on education, uh, I, you know, I'm doing it because I'm, I'm, I'm at home helping my kids with the homework and, and talking to their teachers. Um, so, yeah, I, I think for me, you know, my perspective is what gives me the best ability to try to make tough decisions down at the Georgia Capitol. I think that's helped me and Governor Kemp 
last 18 months make some tough decisions around the pandemic. Uh, if we simply just look through the lens of, uh, you know, unfortunately, like you know, President Biden's doing, we, 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 we forget about those small businesses that are trying to keep food on the table for their employees and trying to keep their doors open. Um, so I think that perspective matters. Well, okay, the reason we had you on the show mainly is, is about this new book you've written, GOP 2.0. Uh, tell us uh, what motivated you to write this book. Yeah, you know, I actually started scratching uh, the, the, the blueprint to it before the whole uh, post-November election fallout here in Georgia. I, you, know, I could, you know, I'm not certainly the only Republican that thought maybe there might be a better pathway forward. You know, I'm one of those guys that gets up and, and a Republican, not because I win, but because I truly think conservative values matter. Uh, they've mattered when I was growing up. They mattered uh, when I'm running my businesses and certainly raising my family. Uh, and so when I watched, you know, just uh, uh, the, the approach, I, I thought we could get even better. And the unfortunate fallout of the post-election debacle, certainly in my, in my opinion, and in, in the opinion of many others, uh, was that that was not our best foot forward uh, as as Georgians and, and certainly as Republicans. Uh, and so I wrote a book called GOP 2.0. It's, it's simply a, a way for us to get our policies right, but also to start winning elections again. Um, you know, there's lots of, lots of you know, information, lots of different talking points and data points as to why former President Trump didn't win the election. And certainly we can all sit here for hours on end. But I think with a few small adjustments, we can get back in the victory column. I think if we start reminding Americans why, why we're Republicans and what policies matter, uh, and also look at opportunities to try to move our feet on some of these issues as conservatives around immigration and other issues. Uh, all that with a better tone, and I think we match up well in 2024 to try to win the White House back. Well, you know, when I was reading over the book and I read some of the um, intro online and then your team was so kind to send the whole book over, it reminded me of the infamous 2012 GOP autopsy and the way that you – kind of see a more inclusive, um, particularly racially, uh, you know, Republican Party. But the Republican base rejected that in 2016 in favor of Trumpism. What will it take to make your vision and that 2012 uh, autopsy more palatable to the GOP base that may say, hey, we won in 2016. We didn't win in 2012. Yeah, you know, certainly I you know, the GOP 2.0, the book, uh, is just part of the movement, and the movement is national. Uh, I'm leaving here out of Washington, D.C. Uh, this week and flying up to New Hampshire to, to, to speak to the National uh, New Hampshire Institute of Politics to start laying the groundwork for a GOP 2.0 significantly influencing who that Republican nominee is going to be in 2024. And, and, and I think we're going to get folks to come on board through, you know, three or four different channels. One is going to be a group of folks like me that just – hey, look, I, I want to be a conservative, but I want to win. Uh, I think there's some folks that, uh, you know, that, that wake up and, and, and they're, they're on board with Donald Trump, right? They, they love everything he does, but they just realize that a better tone is, is, is a winning strategy. And then there's going to be a whole group of folks that show up that are just going to get tired of losing. And it's not enough to just scream at each other in the mirror. Uh, we, need to, we need to start winning again. And to do that, I think, like every other business, uh, you got to sit down and evaluate what you do well and what you don't do well. And Donald Trump did a lot well. I mean, as I was preparing for a couple of different speeches this week, I started to really look over what those 2016 promises were. Uh, you know, a conservative Supreme Court check, uh, spokesman for uh, all those Republicans and conservatives that felt like they, they, were, they didn't have a voice in, in government or in their party for a long, long time. Um, you know, certainly, I mean, he, he delivered on a number of those promises. Uh, but I also think there's some challenges where some folks woke up in the suburbs and, and maybe realized that, that he didn't quite follow through. Like, drain the swamp. It was the greatest campaign slogan I've ever heard in my life, maybe ever, in the history of, of politics. But Donald Trump actually, unfortunately, fed the swamp. And with $7.8 trillion in, a, in additional national debt, much of that well before the pandemic started, I think a lot of folks that showed up to vote for him in 2016 as fiscal conservatives, not necessarily social con social conservatives, they, they just couldn't pallet it anymore. And, and so, look, I voted for him. I voted for him twice. Um, and I wish he would have won, but he didn't. And uh, now we got to look up and figure out how to pick up the pieces and move on. Well, I'm sitting here in Rome, Georgia, where you uh, kind of frame the early part of your book. You talk about giving a speech earlier that day before his 
um, one of his last rallies, I guess his last rally in the state, and you got a lukewarm to negative response in your message that was more inclusive about, you know, when we do things that are, you know, for Republicans. They're not just for Republicans. They're for all people. And you even got booed, you said. Um, do you blame your the response you got on Trump and, you know, Donald Trump kind of creating this environment where they won't red meat negativity? Or is that just the GOP base? Or enough of it that wanted that, and Donald Trump's just a symptom of it. I, I don't know. I, I mean, it just depends which day of the week you, you sit down and analyze it. I mean, I think for, for certain, you know, he, he touched the nerve in 2016. He revved up the base, 280 characters on Twitter, uh, got the following. And, and, you know, a prime example of in 2020, they used the same strategy they did in 2016. And, and why not, right? It worked. Uh, but also, it, it, if you look at the data, he drove out. 12 million more people showed up to vote for him in 2020 than 2016. But, you know, much like, uh, you know, uh, you know, showing up to play a baseball game against your bitter rival, right? Like the Yankees versus Red Sox uh, show, you know, show up with a little different attitude than when, you know, the Red Sox play the Mariners at home. And that's what happened. The Democrats showed up with 16 million more people in that 2020 election. And it wasn't rigged. It wasn't fraud. Certainly, I've spent all the time I can possibly spend and all the brain cells looking at any sort of potential fraud. And it just wasn't there. We got beat. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump missed the layup. Uh, He should have won. And, you know, that Rome rally is a prime example. I spent a lot of time at the beginning of the book. The first, you know, 20-ish pages is focused towards trying to unpack that, that moment in time. And, you know, 47 minutes he's on stage, and he spent three minutes talking about all the great wins. And there were wins, accelerated vaccine a whip-sawing economy, national security, border, Supreme Court. He should have spent the entire time talking about all of that. But instead he spent 44 minutes ripping the face off every human that's ever crossed him, and, and that just didn't serve well. Yes. Well, I've got a few more questions, but I'm going to pass it over to one of my co-hosts, Tim Shiflett, and then he'll come back to me. Tim? Good evening, Lieutenant Governor, and thank you for being on with us tonight even though you're traveling we certainly appreciate it and by the way go jackets okay well look at that that doesn't (laughs) happen all the time yeah well i'm a season ticket holder so it certainly happens with me now good for you um in your book when you're talking about the rome rally in your assessment of the republican party that you witnessed on that very night you said And I quote, a chilling tone had descended on the party, you're either with us or against us. Now, this was right before the election. Eleven months later, do you find that the Republican Party is still in that state? Yes, but improving. And uh, I spent a lot of time and energy talking about it in twofold wise improving. One, I think the distance of time is helping us uh, as a party heal and rebuild ourselves. And that's why I'm not running for re-election. I, I want to focus all of my attention having a conversation with America about how we can heal and rebuild this party. But I think mm-hmm. an important part of, of, of the Republican base is starting to center around the fact that Joe Biden is just doing such an unbelievably bad job leading this country. It, it's just unbelievable. And I, I say this more, hopefully folks, folks realize I'm being genuine when I say this. I say this as an American, not as a Republican. But the handling of the Afghanistan exit was just an unbelievable failure. What's happening on the southern border is, is a crisis in even the Democrats' eyes. You can't just leave an open border for folks that are illegally coming into this country, drugs that are illegally coming in, and human trafficking that's going on both sides of the border. Uh, runaway inflation. When you go to your kid's football game on a Friday night, and, and, the, and the only thing everybody's talking about is how expensive it is to run their small business or run their household. So these are real problems, and so for me, I think that we're going to, as, as time goes on and we get closer to the 2024 cycle, Republicans are going to clap and applaud and praise the things that Donald Trump did well, but also wake up and realize the things that we need to do better. And what if the nominee is Donald Trump? Yeah, and, and look, certainly there's those that think that's a possibility. I'm not one of those. Um, I, I just don't think that's a possibility, and and at the end of the day, if, if that is the case, I'm afraid we'll miss our second layoff in a row and we'll continue to be led by either Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or some other sort of contingent of the Biden administration because uh, we, we, we hit a high watermark. 
we squeezed as much out of the rural parts of our country, as much of the Trump supporters, and, and we just continue to rev the other side. But I, I think the realities are this. Donald Trump has 0% chance of ever being president again. Uh, and I mm-hmm. don't say that in a dis- disparaging way. I just say that as a uh, history tells us that. And also, you know, the self-inflicted wounds that we continue to watch happen uh, are repulsive. And, and, and quite honestly, we don't have to go any further than our great state of Georgia a few weeks ago to see some of those self-inflicted wounds, like in the Perry rally when he unfortunately said, we as Republicans in Georgia should vote for Stacey Abrams over Brian Kemp. I mean, that's just that's just ridiculous. Nobody in their right mind who's a Republican doesn't think Brian Kemp is a conservative leader, probably the most conservative governor in our state's history. He's led mm-hmm. us to a pandemic with, near, with nearly under 3% unemployment. He's balanced lives and livelihoods better than any other governor. We've got $6 mm-hmm. billion dollars sitting in a rainy day fund. Um, he's a real governor if you're a conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, you have stated, Lee, and, and, and I read in your book where you said the very same thing, that, that as a lifelong Republican, no one will chase you from your own party. But does that include a scenario in which Donald Trump is the uh, you know the dominant party force for the foreseeable future? Because me from the outside looking at it, I don't see another scenario developing right now. Yeah, I, I think it does develop. Uh, I just think just the reality, the weight of reality is going to to, to come into play. Um, whether he decides to take a step away or, or a number of folks around the country just start waking up to, you know, look, I, he, here's the brutal realities. And, look, I, I'm a Republican. I voted for him. I've always yes, said sir. that before. But the, but the brutal realities of that Perry rally and other incidents that are starting to pop up are that he cared more about his pride than he did his party. Mm-hmm. And I, I hate it for him that he lost the election and that we're being led by Joe Biden, but we can't just keep crying about the 2020 past. I mean, you think about this. You know, just just a week or two after that rally, out comes a letter that he says that if we don't rewind the 2020 election, we as Republicans should stay home again. And, and I don't have to remind you any further than Kelly Leffler and David Perdue how that scenario works out. That's yes, a terrible sir. strategy. <laughs> yes, sir. It, it most certainly is. And a, a lot of Democrats, uh, I, I might add, cheered uh, Donald Trump when he said that. Yeah, it's almost like Stacey uh, Abrams wrote his speech that night. I mean, come on. <laughs> Okay, um, I can't let you get off without asking you about this. Explain to our listeners who've not read the book yet what is the PET project, and, and why would Republican supporters be drawn to it? Well, yeah, it's it's the pet project, and you know, I'm just mm-hmm. for whatever reason, I'm a sucker for good acronyms, and so I put together <laughs> this pet project and. And it's policy, empathy, and tone. And so I just wanted to simplify it for Americans all over the country to just wake up and realize, hey, if I just go to work and work on this pet project, I think we can win elections going forward. So the policy split up into a couple of categories. You know, uh, I think we're really good at the policies as Republicans. And we just need to remind people around the coffee tables and, and, and the boardrooms and the break rooms of why they should come vote for a Republican. And the E is empathy. I, I think if we want to grow the size of the tent, we got to really focus in on stop telling people to vote for us and ask them what we can do to help them. You know, if you go into the inner cities and you're trying to get some folks from different communities to vote for us, you'll be you'll probably be surprised when you when you see how simple it is to get get them to vote for it. They're going to say, "Hey, clean up my streets and make my schools better." Well, you know what? We as Republicans are pretty good at that. We shouldn't write mm-hmm. off those inner city communities as potential support areas. And then the T in in PET, the T is tone. And that's pretty self-explanatory. I think we would have probably got uh, – this is an unscientific poll – but probably gotten 10 million more people to vote for Donald Trump if he would have just put down that dang phone and used a better tone on trying to convince Americans why he should be uh, still be the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you one final question. I'm going to send it back to David. As you know, there there are many – pundits and others in this country who say that the Republican Party is now essentially Donald Trump's personal party that the Republican Party, except as a name on paper, uh, no longer exists, nor will it again as long as he's on the scene. Yet you are, by your own admission, 
optimistic that you can go forward and help make the party better while retaining its traditional values. What gives you this outlook? Is it faith or, or, or what gives you this optimistic outlook? Yeah, I, I think it goes back to where we started the interview at. It's my perspective. I've been the underdog my entire life. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I understand the value of hard work, and it's going to be all the above, right? The weight of reality is right. I know that conservative values are the best way to lead this country, and they matter. And I feel like Donald Trump at this point in time, post, post-election, is, is, is a short-term sugar high, and we're going to move on, not because we don't respect the things he's done, but just because we want to win again. And I'm optimistic, mm-hmm. but you know what? This country is a great country. This is a great party, and uh, it's not good enough to come in second place anymore. And uh, we've got to mm-hmm. win, and I think, uh, I think Americans are going to continue to wake up. And, and, you know, it's unfortunate to watch what's happening. I mean, there should be candidates out there raising money every which way, trying to get ready to try to jockey for a position to be the Republican nominee. But instead, you know, we've got the former president down there raising money, sucking all the, the support out of the room. And, and, look, so be it. It's America. He can do that. I just think that we need to put a better foot forward in 2024. Well, as I turn it back over to David, Lieutenant Governor, I'd like to thank you for coming on, and I would like to say that I miss the party of of Reagan and Eisenhower and Teddy Roosevelt and, and Abraham Lincoln. It is a great party. I believe in the two-party system, and I want, I want to see it that way again, and I wish you well in your efforts to help make it so. And this is a New Deal liberal that just said that to you. And well, that, thanks, thanks for those words of encouragement. All right. Now, I'm gonna, with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David? Yes. Um, well, Lieutenant Governor, um, you, you know, you, Tim asked you about uh, PET, um, the PET part of the book. But talking about policy, in recent years, uh, many members of the Republican base have turned away from science Seemingly, they've rejected a lot of science and scientific information, and it seems like to have sound policy, you have to have some grounding in science. What do you think the Republican leaders need to do to get the base and the party back to a respect and a usefulness of science? Well, I just think we've got to have realistic conversations about real, real issues, right? If we're trying to go to work every day as, uh, you know, as Republicans and just try to get reelected, then we're just going to talk, about, talk on the surface. We're not going to care about the, the details or the facts or figures. Um, and, uh, but if we, if we truly want to embrace the leadership side of the jobs, then we'll, we'll dig deep into the details, right? I, my campaign slogan has always been policy over politics, and probably because I just don't care about the politics or I'm not very good at them. But the policy matters. The words on the page matter. The words on the page put food on the table for that single mom. The words on the page keep that, that community safe when we're talking about not defunding the police. The words on the page matter when you're trying to build a military to protect yourselves against some of the largest, most aggressive foreign adversaries. And so I, I just think it's what we do as Republicans, what we do as a country, what we do as Americans is so much more important than just winning an election. And that, to me, is the long-range focus. You know, if it's pretty easy in the business world to wake up and look at the headlines and see which CEOs are running their company just quarter to quarter to drive up a stock price and which CEOs are running the business to build long-term equity value for those shareholders and for those employees. And that's the kind of business I gravitate towards. Well, I mean, and a lot of the businesses, like maybe it sounds like the business that you're trying to recruit uh, in when you're up in Washington this week um, has a foundation in science. I mean, getting back to science – what do you do to reestablish a relationship between scientific usefulness of scientific principles and the Republican base? Yeah, well, it comes down to the, it comes down to the Republican base, right? I think the uh, the folks trying to run for office uh, are just responding to what folks want, and unfortunately, right now, folks. And I don't think this is just a Republican issue. I think this is people in general. I mean, the political system's broken. Uh, broken almost, you know, it feels like at times beyond repair. Uh, everybody's addicted to 10-second sound bites, right? They're making their they're making their decisions on big stuff based on 10-second sound bites, and and uh, you know, first paragraph or the headline in a newspaper, uh, or a you know, a quick social media post. Uh, that's just unfortunate. We we need to spend more time understanding the issues, and and uh, and that's not just the elected; that's the voters too. No, well, I mean, I agree that the Democratic Party and Democratic voters probably have some blind spot or weakness, 
but it's not science. And that's something I would take some time to, to focus on as you want to move the party forward because it seems like that's a big issue uh, for the Republican Party moving forward. Well, kind of talking uh, at our show recently, we mentioned Andrew Yang, who's leading the Democratic Party and becoming independent. Um, now, it seems like his vision is there's just not much market uh, for it. It's not like his vision is going to be that much different than a lot of the Democratic Party. And it seems like the void in the electorate is voters that are you know, right of center but reject Trumpism, reject that negative on-the-libs tone, which it seems like you're, uh, is the thesis for your book. Um, if Trump just continues and Trumpism continues to dominate the Republican Party in the next cycle or two, would you consider running as an independent and kind of filling that void? So no, I wouldn't run as an independent. And if Trump keeps poking his head into this uh, political situation and, and the nomination, uh, I'm afraid I, I know exactly how the next chapter is going to get written. It's going to be a, another second-place finish, and uh, that would be unfortunate. But uh, no, I, look, I'm a Republican. I'm a lifelong Republican. It'll take somebody much bigger and badder than Donald Trump to chase me out of this party. Okay. Well, um, well, thank you for your time. Uh, I'm going to ask you two more quick things. Um, Since, you know, you're a professional baseball player and the Braves are having their best season in in quite a while, if I'm not not mistaken, um, any predictions for how far they go? I think the Braves are going to be in the World Series. I think we're going to have a busy fall in Atlanta. Yeah. Okay. And and then um, since you've been so gracious to come on and talk about your book, if somebody's listened to it, and they want to or listen to your interview and they want to read it or possibly listen to it in the future, how can they um, purchase it? Well, thanks for the opportunity to be on with you all. Just really, really good conversation here, and hopefully we can do this again. Uh, they can go to GOP2.org, which is our website, and uh, there's a way to you click a button there and link them out to their favorite retailer, whether it be Amazon, Books a Million, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Target. It's also available uh, in most of those stores, too. Uh, on the shelf uh, at Barnes and Noble, so um, would love the uh, you know the opportunity to to uh, get them to read it, and uh, certainly love to get their feedback. All right, well, good luck to you in Washington, because that's probably one thing we can all agree on is bringing jobs back to Georgia is something that'll be good for all of us. But uh, thanks again mm-hmm. for coming on the show tonight. Absolutely, y'all have a great night, and uh, go Braves. Thank you, sir. Thanks, sir. All right, that was Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, author of the new book, GOP 2.0. Interesting conversation, Um, and like I said, we've gotten a copy of the book to to look at, and and so it's definitely – the tone is definitely better than than Trumpism. Um, That is is one thing um, that that I think is clear, but, um, you know, Trumpism has a fairly negative tone for a lot of people um, to the center and left to center of the aisle. Um, well, let's go ahead and get back into our conversation about the um, Atlanta mayoral race. And, um, Tim, we were talking about, you know, crime is a major issue. Now, I know when this right. campaign started out, Felicia Moore was looking at running against current Atlanta mayor, Keisha Lance Bottom. She was going to make that a major issue. Kasim Reed, um, he was in office and crime dropped. Now, you can say that may have been a time in which crime dropped in a lot of American cities. Atlanta probably had a, an economic resurgence at that time. That probably helped crime drop. But when you're in the office, you know, a lot of times you're going to get the credit, um, just like you're going to get the blame if things don't go right. Um, so you've got these two candidates that are first and second in the polls, and crime is the issue. Um, does that possibly benefit um, any of the other candidates, Catherine? How do you think crime being the major issue, or are you seeing that being a city resident uh, being the you know big issue in the campaign? Oh, that's definitely a big issue. Um, I think you you or Tim mentioned. I think the two biggest issues right now are crime and affordable housing. Um, that seems to be those seem to be the things that are floating to the top, and corruption is a is a underlying uh, theme for all of this. Mm. Um, I think 
the problem with crime, of course, is very, very complicated. Um, there's a lot of um, evidence that part of the reason that crime went up in Atlanta, especially during the last 18 months or so, was because Georgia was such an open um, uh, open uh, because because of the pandemic, we were so open. There were a lot of people traveling to Atlanta to party and um, spend time here because there were so few restrictions that that increased crime. So a lot of the crime was from outsiders coming to Atlanta. That's pretty hard to manage as a mayor. Um, you know, if, if the governor chooses to keep the businesses open and uh, commerce open, it's pretty hard to control that, number one. Number two, uh, there's been increases in crime across the country. Um, I think that it, ha- it has been bad. You know, I live in downtown or I live in West Midtown, Atlanta, and, I, you know, I hear a lot of sirens. I see a lot of... Uh, crime statistics, and it's scary. It has has had an impact on my life as far as, you know, like questioning whether to go out at night, um, wondering about, you know, crime directly in my neighborhood. So um, it's a concern of mine. But I think it's much bigger than, than the mayor and much bigger than um, than the sort of sound bites that we hear about solving it. Um, affordable housing is also a huge problem in Atlanta. Rents have, have just been kept, keep going up. A lot of houses are being bought up by um, investors who are using them for Airbnbs and temporary housing. Um, so the rental properties are less available. And um, that also has increased crime because there's a lot of um, partying and um, disruption going around in in those uh, you know temporary rental properties. So uh, I, I think there's a, a lot a big list on the next mayor's uh, you know to do list to um, solve some of these problems. And I think that we have some candidates who are capable and. Uh, have some good ideas about how to solve them. I do not think Kasim Reed is one of them. Okay. Uh, well, we'll get into some of that. But but um, one thing I do think that's very important to remember about the crime statistics I've read is, you know, this has been true for decades now, like murder, which is obviously the biggie when it comes to crime. Um, most murders happen to people. The, the victim knows the perpetrator. It's not the scary, unknown stranger um, the majority of the time. And people, you know, during a lockdown were near each other, and this probably was the fact with, you know, spousal, partner abuse, what have you as well. Being, you know, the pandemic probably exacerbated that, and that's not the same kind of crime you can control as easily with policies. Um, So I think that's figures in. I think at other times, a lot of times, when people watch the 11 Alive news or the WSB TV news and they see that somebody's murdered in Riverdale or somebody was shot in Norcross, they're going to subscribe that to the mayor of Atlanta, who has no jurisdiction yeah. whatsoever in those places. Um, because, you know, watching the anecdotal evidence of the newscast locally is just not a a good way to evaluate crime statistics. Um, so I think that all figures in. Catherine, I do want to ask you about two of the candidates that I've seen TV ads for, or at least maybe one online and one on TV. Um, and then, but I haven't, they haven't made any traction in the polls. Um, but then they kind of fit the model of the candidate that finished, I guess, second, at least in two mayor's races, uh, Mary Norwood, um, Sharon Gay and Rebecca King. Um, I think Sharon King actually. I'm sure Sharon Gay actually had commercials on um, 
you know, football games and different things I saw, whereas I think Rebecca King's made just been online, they've gotten no real traction in the polling thus far. Are they getting any traction anywhere else? Very little. Um, you know, the, there's a, a lot of the oxygen in the room is being taken up by uh, former Mayor Reed and um, City Council President Felicia Moore with uh, a little a little bit taken up, especially recently, by um, Andre Hitchens. Um, I'm not sure why uh, Sharon Gay hasn't gotten more uh, attention. I think I think part of it is just name recognition. Um, I had never heard of her until she started running, and you know I'm I'm pretty inside baseball, and uh, you know I think she's been a uh, behind the scenes leader for a long time, but she hasn't made a big uh, visible uh, imprint on Atlanta. So I think that's part of it. And then I think it's just that that those top three three candidates have really stepped out and had more uh, visibility and more name recognition, partly because they're already yes. elected. And and one more um, issue about what you mentioned. You mentioned affordable housing, and, and I personally, my theory on what's going on in Atlanta and probably many cities around the country, um, and it's what's happened years ago in um, Paris, France, is there's kind of a resorting in America. You had you know white flight in the 50s and the 60s, where a lot of um, white middle class families left the city, went to the suburbs. And in the past decade or two, and it's only, I think, to become more and more, people that have more income of any race are going to say traffic stinks. Who wants to deal with it? I want to be in the city center where the sports teams play and the art museums. You know, the artists hung and things happen. The concerts are played. I want to be in the city center and so forth. Therefore, that's going to naturally increase the price of housing in the city center, and then you're going to have a ring of suburbs around the city in places like I just mentioned, like Riverdale and Norcross. That's going to become your area where the lesser-valued housing will be. That's just a natural reshuffling, and I'm not sure how much policy um, you can do to hold that um, natural demographic change around. What do you think, Catherine? Well, there are a lot of, uh, I mean, obviously that there's a lot of truth to what you're saying, but there, there are um, ways to provide, for, provide affordable housing uh, along with uh, the housing that is desirable by those people that are part of this reshifting. Um, and I don't think that Atlanta has done enough to um, address that. You know, we've got so many uh, new apartment and condo complexes build it, being built all over the city. And um, there, are, there are ways to um, make policies that require builders to provide some affordable housing within those complexes, and as well as provide... Um, you know, green spaces and other things. And I think that we're so um, focused on, you know, building those buildings and providing for those developers that we sometimes lose sight of what those develop, how those developments impact a community. So I think there are ways that a city can, um, can guide uh, communities to, and developers to work together to address those uh, problems. I mean, we we have a, a lot of people that work in Atlanta that can't afford to live here, um, and we want a community that. I mean, I think uh, at least I do. I want a community that's diverse, that has um, opportunities for people at all levels of a, of the economic um, ladder, so that they can 
you know, they can experience the same things that you're talking about. They want to go to sports games too. They want, everyone wants to be, have access to cultural events without having to, you know, hop on a bus, hop on a train or, you know, struggle through traffic with their children, with their, you know, whatever it might be. So um, I think, I think there are ways that a city can address that. It's not entirely, um, it's not entirely policy driven, but there are, there are things that can be done to address that. It's complicated. Yeah, and really, uh, Atlanta, like a lot of other cities, is not set up for people that don't have as much money, therefore don't have a, a car or don't have a, a, a car that works all the time every time you can crank it to live too far outside the city center with no rapid transit trains in particular. Um, and so that's something that regionally – um, if you're going to have this shifting where more people live in that that first ring of suburbs, um, if they now live there, you're going to have to have train stations that go out to those, and that's going to be something that not only the city's going to have to handle, but all those local counties and the state um, to, to put that together as it shuffles. Well, Tim, um, you know, we've noticed something recently. And it happened in the New York mayor's race with Eric Adams. And people, a lot of people say that in the Democratic primary it happened. And I think we can point to some more races. Older, more moderate African-American voters decided um, who won a race. And if that happens, if, if African-American voters that are, say, 50 to 60 years old or 50 up, that are maybe more moderate and, and, the, and maybe even more conservative in the context of a Democratic Party, because, um, you know, by and large, most voters in the city of Atlanta are Democratic. If that's the case and that dominates, who, which candidate do you think that favors? Well, I would have to say the former mayor, to seem Reed. If they are looking for older, experienced, someone who's been there, it would have to be him, and the second choice would have to be the city council president. They would tend to go to the seasoned politicians, uh, and I, I would think. I could not imagine any of those other 12 candidates under really any scenario, David, um, prevailing in this race. I don't see a, quote, surprise coming. Um, I was thinking about something, too. You, you know, every every Saturday that Georgia Tech's at home, there I go straight to North Avenue to watch Tech play. And I always go up Marietta Street of the Northside Drive, Marietta Street exit. Um, and I have watched how that area has morphed in, say, the last 30 years from one of the most depressed areas you would ever want to see in your life. And anyone who drove up Marietta Street 30 years ago would know exactly what I'm talking about. And, David, you would you would surely know what I'm talking about because I'm sure you did it then, too. Uh, there were places there you didn't want to be in broad open daylight with 10 people. Um, now it is an area that almost totally consists of high-end condos going up everywhere, trendy restaurants and clothing shops and, and upscale clubs. I mean, I mean, it just looks like a different world. And it's populated largely by young urban professionals, a, a veritable rainbow of races. But the thing most of them have in common is their relative youth, people in their 20s and 30s out walking their dogs and jogging up the street early in the morning. Who would these people want to vote for is my question. I don't. I don't know, and I wish there was better, you know, polling data where we had more cross tabs. Because, and maybe that's where the pool of undecideds are. I, I don't know, um, yeah. Catherine. You know, Tim 
uh, mentioned about, uh, you know, if, if those voters that decided seemingly the New York mayor's race um, and, and probably supported Joe Biden for um, the nomination, if they're the deciding factor in Facebook, do you think they support Kasim Reed as Tim does? Um, I think that, yes, I think that the, you know, 50 and plus, uh, you know, it's hard for me to say. Uh, I think Felicia Moore and Kasim Reed probably split that vote um, mm. because they're, they, people know who they are. I think there are a lot of people that are still, um, that Kasim Reed left a bad taste in their mouths, especially as he was exiting office. Um, with some of the, you know, bonuses that he paid and um, the sort of rumble of corruption and investigation that followed him. So I think that that, that is, a, is and should be a problem for him. I also think that, um, for I mean, you know, Tim, that's where I live is mm-hmm. in, in that area. And I watched it too. I mean, I used to sit on Saturday mornings and watch the um, that metal yard. Remember that metal yard? Oh yes, on Marietta Street. I used yes, to sit, we used to sit there on Saturday morning with our coffee and watch them de- demolish cars. We, we're fascinated by all that. And now mm-hmm. it's this sparkling new, not new. It's been there for ten years now. Uh, apartment building with all kinds of, you know, fancy hair salons and restaurants. So it's mm-hmm. been interesting watching that. I think those people, partly because of their proximity to uh, Georgia Tech, a lot of them are Georgia Tech students and um, employees and affiliated with Georgia Tech, may be drawn to Andre Hitchens because he is a Georgia Tech alumni and he does continue to do work with Georgia Tech. And I think he has a pretty good name in the neighborhood. He lives also over here on the side of town. So mm-hmm. I think there's that the vying for those the, the, there's a, a vying for those three places. Obviously, Andre has not gotten the same polling um, results that um, Felicia and um, Mayor Reed have gotten, but but I, that's why I think that there's those are the top three with Sharon Gay in there, you know, slightly. So I I think it's going to be an interesting. Um, it, the results are going to be interesting, but most interesting is what happens, I think, in the runoff. If we end up with um, these top two candidates, which I think is probably likely, um, with um, former Mayor Reed and um, City Council President Felicia Moore, how is that runoff going to um, go? What are the results of that going to be? Um, so I think we have a lot to look forward to. There's a lot um you know, voting has started, so we'll see what's well, happening well, with all those undecided. Yeah, I, I have a, that's my next question. How in this world with voting already underway, if the AJC is correct and, and most other outlets seem to confirm it, how can 41% of the voters be undecided at this point? Anybody? <laughs> well, he, I don't know how the 41% is undecided, but i tell you what I would do if I wanted to know who won this race. You know, our friend Tom Jensen at Public Policy Polling, when he does a poll, and anybody could ask this question, if you've already voted, who did you vote for? And if some candidate is outpacing what they get in the polls, like let's say – you know, Kasim Reed has 22% and Felicia Moore has 18 Well, let's just say Felicia Moore has 24 and Kasim Reed has his same 18 or 22 or whatever I said. Then that's going to mean something for Felicia Moore. Now, if Kasim Reed jumps out to say 32% of the people that are revoted, it's going to be even more valuable because people that are undecided on election day are probably more likely to skip it. I mean, if you had a coupon for free ice cream and you didn't even know what flavor you really wanted, you probably wouldn't go to the grocery store and cash it in. And so I think 
that's a great metric. The next person that does a poll, and you don't know what you owe me for that tip, ask that question, find out that data point, and you probably have a good idea who's leading this race. Hmm. What about turn? Yeah. It, it, you know, the, the last, the, when, when Kasim Reed was elected mayor, uh, the turnout was terrible. <laughs> I mean, that's, it was that's the only way to put it. Is, is it going to be that bad this time? I certainly hope so. I hope not. I remember those numbers. It was like 35,000 people elected. Oh, yeah. It was just awful. It was awful. In a major American city. <laughs> I just wonder what, if we're looking is at there, something like that again. Yeah. Are there any other city council races or are races on the ballot that are really getting a lot of action underneath the mayor's race, Catherine? Well, you know, because um, Felicia Moore is running and Andre's running and uh, Antonio Brown, Antonio and Brown, Antonio Brown, um, there's there's some open uh, seats on the city council, so there, there's a little bit of um, competition in there, but it's not getting as mu- nearly as much play as uh, the mayor's race now, and the, even the city yeah. council president race isn't getting that much play. Yeah, uh, that's interesting to think about. Um, Well, Tim, I've got a question for you. Kasim Reed, you know, during his eight eight years, two terms, the city had um, a pretty good economic period where businesses came. I think he and uh, the time governor deal worked together to try to bring a lot of uh, businesses to Atlanta. Um, But one business left, and that business is getting a lot of attention, and we've already talked about it on the show. The Braves left the city limits of Atlanta, went to Smyrna while he was mayor. Do you think that has any real impact on the race? No, I don't. I, I think uh, far, far, far more impact on the race would be what Catherine mentioned, and that that was the you know the troubling things about some corruption and stuff like that at the end of the mayor's term. Uh, I think that would be far more of an issue than the fact that the Braves have left, mainly because they kept their name. Atlanta, Atlanta Braves. Even though they're in Cobb County, uh, it's still, what, a dozen miles up the road. And, no, I I, I really don't think that's a big issue. Besides, I I believe that, you know, it, it worked out. The, the way it was going to work out, whether the mayor had done anything at all about it. I, I believe the die was cast for them to move, and they were just going to do it. And I, and I believe the people of Atlanta understood that. So No, I don't believe yeah, that's the Catherine, quick chance to weigh in on it. Do you think it matters? I don't think it matters. In fact, I think that that whole part of Atlanta where the Brave Stadium was, is now facing a big rejuvenation. There's all kinds of development going on over there. Um, some new small businesses have opened. There's some apartments being built. And, of course, Georgia Tech took over the um, the former Brave Stadium, uh, Turner Field. Georgia and, State. Is that, what did I say? You said Georgia Tech, Georgia State. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Georgia State. I, I, I apologize. Um so I think, you know, overall, the the results have been good for Atlanta. Um, and, you know, people seem to be really happy with the uh, new stadium up in Cobb County. And so I, I, I agree with him. I don't think there, there's a um, much blowback on that. I think it's been long enough that – and plus, um, whatever you call it, stadium or what do they call it? Um, arena mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. been a huge success. Has been a huge success, and I think if anything, people will get would give him credit for that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right about what Georgia State has done to that area has been transformational, um, and it's still going. There's a, a an arena that's going to host about hold about eight ten thousand. It's still open. They're going to open more residential area. 
Um, and then the Georgia State Panthers are probably only going to get better and play bigger teams, um, even though that's only going to be roughly, um, you know, six, six dates a year, um, at least for their football. But at the same time, Mercedes-Benz opening brought Atlanta United in. Now, you know, Kasim Reed probably, that was going to get brought in by Arthur Blank. But once again, you get credit and blame unfairly. Um, right. I think at right. the end of the day, it's not going to matter. Also, Correct. I think the voters that live in the city limits of Atlanta are probably more likely to be United fans than they are Braves fans. Because younger, more, um, you know, socially aware voters seem to be more soccer-based in these big cities than they are baseball. Um, and, and we're seeing that trend as well. Um, well, I want to thank again the lieutenant governor for coming on and sharing about his new book, Georgia – I'm sorry, GOP 2.0. And then next week we have another author, um, Jason Stafford, who was one of the three writers of the book Forget the Alamo, which had lots of controversy between the three authors and the lieutenant governor, a period in the show in which we've discussed so many lieutenant governors. Um uh, Dan Patrick, as we have recently. Um, but we're going to discuss that book with Jason next week on the show. Until then, in the Cozy Vine. Good night, y'all. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a